of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome to episode number 70 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And with the election now probably almost over and Joe Biden probably almost kind of being the president, I asked the data monkey back here to bring some numbers on this year's election and see what we could infer from them. And then we burned through all of our time discussing how the current mixture of political polarization and unlimited access to information means we have more items appearing as evidence than we do time to argue whether said evidence is valid. While not the goal, it proved very interesting and we reached some conclusions about how to decipher the truth in the midst of this great partisan fog. Hope you enjoy it. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. Uh, So let's see. We are Sunday night, November 29th, end of Thanksgiving weekend. We've both been eating and drinking too much. Yeah. uh, The brains are probably on autopilot. So you you definitely have the hunch monkey here, not the data monkey. Yes. Bring your your hunches. Um, (laughs) Yeah. and they, you know, you know. Remember uh, Douglas Adams, who wrote yeah. the, um, uh, you know, the, the restaurant at the end of the world, and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and all this. Yeah, and I remember the the Hitchhiker's trilogy. I remember he came out with like the fifth book, and I remember it was in a bookstore. It was advertised with a with a poster that said the fifth installment of the increasingly inappropriately titled uh, Hitchhiker's trilogy. Yeah, I was thinking that <laughs> I could. Um, the, the increasingly inappropriately titled Data Monkey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man. You're really... <laughs> well, uh, out, I'm coming really ill-prepared to this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, I'm trying to think, not like Boston Chicken, because that's not around anymore when they had, you know, when they had Boston Chicken and they had to change it to Boston Market because they just ended up serving too much Because like, then they're like, oh, wait a minute. This means we really kind of only have to serve chicken. <laughs> we really painted ourselves <laughs> into a corner here, didn't we? Oh, I never really yeah. thought about this. <laughs> so I need to I need to ask. We haven't had a chance to talk since. How was your uh, How was your Thanksgiving? Well, I find it kind of funny that I, I feel like, in a way, I'm a bit of a cynic around this. Dan, isn't there like a Don't you feel like there's a lot of faux outrage out there about you know being kept from their family on Thanksgiving? I mean, every other year. I feel like all we do is complain about people like, complain about having to get together with their family oh, yeah. on Thanksgiving. And I was sort of, I was sort of like, wow, haven't we all been secretly wishing for a day when you could just stay home and, and uh, you know, sit around and watch football and, and have a meal with just your immediate family and not have to travel or do anything. And Oh yeah. There was an onion article and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it said man smoking joint, eating Taco Bell thousands of miles away from family, having best Thanksgiving of life. <laughs> Which I think sums it up. Yeah, exactly. So I, I in that so. way, I think you know, I, I think that's about uh, that's about right. I'd say we uh, we 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 had a food swap. We went over to meet, you know, at my sister's. We everybody like prepared the sides and like did our stuff separately, and then broke mm-hmm. them up into servings. And we went over and sort of said hi outside, and and then swapped everybody's food so that we could all go home. So we, everyone didn't have to make all the things at home. Uh, yeah, and so then we came back, and then just like I kind of got the got the meal together, and then we just sat and hung out. I don't know. It was yeah, kinda, it was kind of nice. It was just uh, you know, just the family, just the just the family. Yeah, that Quiet. is nice. That is nice, man. Yeah, yeah, I saw there were definitely two types of outrage for Thanksgiving. There was the I can't get together with my family outrage slash you can't tell me what to do outrage, and then there was the, I can't believe you're getting together with your family on Thanksgiving outrage, which generally like most of the people who were like that, that I saw on social media, I knew hated their families anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like just, they were happy that nobody got to enjoy their holiday. Um, We did. So, and I'll ask for your take on this. I, so my, you know, you know, my brother and his family live right down the street from us. Yep. 
my brother-in-law and his family live not too far from us as well. And so as a result, we're all kind of intermingling. Um, none of us work outside the home. Um, we all have kids in school, so there's a certain amount of exposure there, obviously. But, you know, Sarah's driving our nephew to school. If my brother needs help, uh, you know, we're taking his kids, yeah, vice so versa. you're all in need- the same bubble. Like, yeah. All, so, already interacting with each other. Yeah. So we're all mixing together. And then there's my parents who are also right down the street from us. And again, there's a fair bit of intermingling. And so this year for Thanksgiving, you know, we decided we're all kind of together anyway. So our level of exposure is just about the same. So we're going to get together, except my parents were going to stay at home. And then they were going to come over to, um, for dessert. And we were going to sit out on the porch and have dessert there because it was supposed to be relatively mild, right? So that was the plan. That was the plan. So Thanksgiving dinner comes, you know, my brother comes over, my brother-in-law comes over, their families are over, the kids are all playing. That's fine. It's kind of what we had planned. And then dessert comes, right? And so my parents show up for dessert. And so I say, you know, I say to my parents, I'm like, go out on the porch. I'll get everybody out there. I go up to get a sweatshirt. I come back down and my dad is plopped down like right in the middle of everybody in the dining room doing exactly what I told him not to do. So he's there. My mom's there. I can't really throw them out of the house at this point. So mm-hmm. I just opened a bunch of windows and, uh, and again, not exactly the same effect as a screened in porch, but, um, but my dad's got this whole thing where he's like, Oh, I'm not worried about coronavirus. And you know, if I get coronavirus from, from hugging my grandkids, so be it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but like if you get it and then mom gets it and mom's the one who gets taken down, I'm killing you next, you know, <laughs> like, 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 cause it's great. I'm just going to beat you to death for being an idiot. Pretty much, I mean, I'm going to have a very tough time not doing it. I'm going to tell you. And then my, then his grandkids are going to grow up with a daddy in jail and it's going to be tragic, you know, but that's kind of like, so, so that's what happened to us. So now, like, of course, I have been imagining COVID symptoms all weekend. I wake up in the middle of the night now with like a tickle in my throat Yep. and say, I just killed my whole family. Yeah. That's great. So we are. The the hypochondria is definitely run rampant far more than uh, than, than COVID. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So needless to say, we are shut down for Christmas my mom has already been scared straight from the whole incident, um, and um, and we are uh, we're we're officially like it's just the six of us, just the you know, which is enough to be frank. And because uh, I think it's just it, I I think you know in, in reality there is probably a certain level of freedom we could all enjoy if we just kind of kept it there. Mm-hmm. but I don't think as human beings, we're going to do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that that's probably right. I mean, you've already talked to me a bunch offline about this and how it, polarization of all these positions is driving yeah. me insane. Right. Like I just, I, it is this, this having to like pick sides on every issue Yeah, when there is clear middle ground on things drives me insane. Right. Like, yeah, because everybody has completely just, you know, self lobotomized, um, on mm-hmm. almost every issue I can think of. And, and this is another one of them, right? Because overall my take on COVID, especially now that we've gotten some pretty, you know, promising vaccination news, let's, let's assume that the majority of people will actually go out and get the vaccinations and not be completely stupid about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, the, once we, that, that sort of tells you there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. And mm-hmm. I think what's driving me crazy is like the inability of people to just sort of like batten down the hatches and just say, look, just get through the next 
four, five, six months. Next Thanksgiving, like Thanksgiving next year will most likely be normal again. Like, you know what I mean? Like we'll, we'll get back to just doing what we normally do. It's, it's a brief moment in time. It's not forever. Right? Yeah. We blow all of this stuff wildly out of proportion. And so it, it uh, I don't know. let's do, I, I have a thought exercise for you. Yeah. Let's say Hillary Clinton had won in 2016 and the virus hit. And there's, you could, you could argue that a Clinton administration might have been better prepared or might have handled it better. But, you know, if you look at how Europe fared, there's very little evidence we wouldn't have had an outbreak. We wouldn't have had a shutdown of some sort. Right. Would the argument of the conservative base still be that this is overblown and you're infringing on our freedoms, or do you think it would have been more critical of her handling of the virus? Mm, it's a great question. I, I'd have to think about it, but I, my, my, I guess my instinct is to say the, the hunch monkey is going to say mm-hmm. the, the hunch right. would be that I think it would more likely be criticism of her handling. You think so? Of it. You think so? Uh, I, I do. I don't – because I think that – I guess my instinct would be to say that, uh, you know, the n- news media that was less friendly to her mm-hmm. would be looking for mistakes she made, not trying to say it's a not a thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. that's how we score – points right like political True. points are all scored by like calling out the errors of the other team yeah um and so i feel like you know where there's been one side trying to paint you know president trump as being like you know completely incompetent at managing it mm-hmm. and i don't i don't think that's entirely the case <laughs> yeah I, I don't i don't think that i, I mean i'm sure people will take issue with that statement, but like, I don't think it's a total incompetence. I, are there like specific things that could have be, been done differently or better or, you know, sure. I, I'm, I'm most certainly there were, there are, and, and there were mm-hmm. um, at the same time. I mean, let's, let's like rewind the clock and, and there's no shortage of, you know, audio and video and, and tweets and whatever of Democrats, like, you know, you know, go out and, you know, you should <laughs> trying to downplay it earlier too, like that it was not a big thing. Right. Like, mm, yeah. um, so, so I, I think it only became, you know, the sort of pushing this as like kind of the quote, like hoax or over, over, you know, um, stating the, the problems with it or the, the, or, or at least the severity of it you know, became a sort of a way of excusing the, the, um, you know, I guess Trump's handling of it. So I guess that's why I'm sort of landing on the idea that it would most likely be that it almost like would be that the roles would be reversed, right? It would be like, you'd have sort of right-wing media trying to say how incompetent she's been at managing it. Um, and you'd have like the, the left-wing media being like, sure, she's not handling great, but it's really not that bad anyway. And, and like, well, she's doing the best she can. You know what I mean? Like, it would be sort of this, like, um, you know, given the tough circumstances, right? Like, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, and then they'd be like favorably comparing it to Germany. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we're leaving at the same incident rate as Germany, you know, like the, um, so I, I guess that's, that. I guess that's my instinct. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Well, so I definitely, I agree with you on that part. I do. I, I don't think they would have tried to underplay the virus because there'd be no benefit in doing so. Um, whereas the analogy I've used in Trump's response to COVID has basically been, you know, treating it like a case of food poisoning at Mar-a-Lago, you know, where you just kind of like, oh, we, we fired the cooks and we clean the kitchen and everything's fine. You know, you just try to gloss over it. Right. Um, I don't think that he can distinguish criticism I don't think he can distinguish criticism of the current state of affairs in the world with personal criticism. And so it either has to not exist or, uh, or he's, 
weak and ineffective, you know, or whatever his right. neuroses are, you know. Right. Right. Um, right. But like, but the the other the other side of things, though, is I do think what has been highlighted time and time again in our response to the virus and in people's response has been this divide between rural slash religious America and uh, let's call it urban secular America too. Um, and I'll, and I'll throw out a couple of examples here, which is if you look at the um, COVID case count from, you know, the, the, when it first broke here until today, and you compare, you know, the, the instances um, across the country, what you'll find is that, you know, the areas that opened up early actually had much lower case counts. So like Florida and Georgia, which were flogged for reopening early, um, had the same level of COVID cases that Massachusetts had when Massachusetts began reopening. Mm-hmm. So from a statistical standpoint, there was very little difference. Um, the only difference was just the outbreak wasn't as intense there. And I'm not an epidemiologist, but my argument is it wasn't as intense because people weren't hunkered down inside like they are up here. It was Mm -hmm. warmer down there, you know, and you look, lo and behold, when the summer comes and when everybody starts shutting their windows down there, all of a sudden the COVID cases spike because people are congregating indoors. Again, totally not, not. Same way they're starting to pick up here in the, in the cold states now. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so, and, and again, the rural areas as well were not as affected. They didn't have the same rate of spread. And so we were trying to nationalize a problem that was still fairly regional, you know? And, and I think we were, or I shouldn't even say we were trying to nationalize a problem. We were trying to apply a, a, a national level of ethics or or a national morality around a problem that was regional you know yep. and and i think that also gets into um not just rural and, and urban but also secular and, and religious because um again and this is something we talked about in an episode a while back but the initial response was to ban church services and which obviously was very personal to a lot of people or to try to prohibit ch- people going to uh, going to religious services. And then, of course, when uh, the protests over George Floyd broke out, there was really it was a very muted response. And so and I mean, again, I think anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I very much supported what was going on uh, around the Black Lives Matter protests. I was a big supporter of that. But at the same time. Uh, I can understand where folks who are religious who are sort of browbeaten for for attending services during the pandemic felt you know felt unduly maligned by all that and and so I think that there's there i I think that would have played out either way, you know so I do think there would I definitely don't think there would have been the denial of its existence. Um, I don't think we would have been having like a bunch of friggin' YouTube randos and lab coats getting on, um, telling us, you know, that tonic water and vitamin D was going to save us from COVID. Um, But I also, I think that rural urban divide, and I think that argument over the overreach of the state would still exist. I think that would yeah, exist on the right-wing side. You know, yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, you know, you're, you're making me realize too, Dan, that I um, I think it, at this point it's important that we uh, we restate our universal disclaimer that you are uh, subjecting yourself to the um, conversation between two middle-aged white guys who live in the Northeast. Exactly. Um, yes, So we you. just want to state that for the record because we do try to make sure we, we remind people of that so when they're sitting there shaking their heads at how incredibly stupid and ignorant we are on most things. That yes, if you that. haven't picked up on that yet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so I, I think what, yeah, I think what you're kind of hitting on and I that rightfully has, I think, irked some people is this the the sort of forced ranking that takes place around the essential nature of some services versus other services mm-hmm. right and so you know uh, deciding that protests were okay but you know church services aren't 
right? Mm-hmm. Like that. That's that's a that you're you're making some decisions about other people's ideas of what's essential and what's not essential, mm-hmm. and it sort of I think it it you know and I, and I guess in some ways implicitly sort of gets right to the heart of some people's like fears around like a big state. You know what I mean? Like a big yeah sort of government overreach, right? Like mm-hmm. it, that, that sort of plays right into that, especially when you see like in California right now, once you've put together all the recommendations that have most likely been made at different times by different people looking at different things, but then you put them all together on a list and it, and it looks like a wildly inconsistent, inconsistent set of things. Right. Like, yes, kids cannot go to playgrounds unless they're at school, in which case you can go to a playground. I'm like, <laughs> it's just like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, like yeah. it's just, I mean, they start once they've all been made in isolation and then you put them all together, it looks incomprehensible, right? Like you're just like, wait, well, this makes no sense. There's no consistency to any of these. Um, and so how is this possibly like helping, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so you're sort of like trashing the economy, making everybody's lives really difficult. And is it, what's it really, and we don't really know what it's accomplishing, right? And, yeah, I think one of the most interesting takes on it I heard was from Jeff Gregory back in June, I think it was. For those who are interested in checking it out or haven't heard, Jeff Gregory, who was the Constitution Party candidate for North Carolina's 5th Congressional District this year. And he had an interesting statement, which, and again, for the folks who've listened, you're, you've already, you already know this. Sorry, I'm repeating myself, but... um you know, his whole analogy was kind of like, you can't, or his, his position was, you can't, the government can't go in and infringe on your rights for an accident that hasn't happened yet. You know, so just like we wouldn't accept the same level of surveillance that pre 9-11 that we did post 9-11, his philosophy was it is better for a disaster to occur than for us to willingly give up our rights to prevent one. Yeah. I don't agree with him on no, the COVID case, but I yeah, get it. Yeah. No, I, I think, uh, I guess that's, I mean, again, that, that sort of reaches right to the polarization of yeah. the nature of these things. Like where I sort of stand on this is that my blood boils over the fact that the people yelling the loudest to reopen the economy are also the same people yelling to like, you know, that we don't like the kid, we don't want to be told to wear a mask or to social distance. I'm going to have my Thanksgiving, like all these things, you know, like, well, you know, we could probably be doing more economic activity. We could normalize more of the economic activity. If you if just we put on your trust mask. everybody to act like, like sensible people, but we're yes. not, everyone's acting completely not sensible. And then I'm sure that, you know, you know, the comment section on this episode alone, we'll get like 18,000 people more. I hope. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you clearly haven't followed the medical studies on masks. You know, you're not really. I'm like, look, all I can tell you is since we've been socially distancing and wearing masks and everybody's washing their hands and Purelling every, every time they, you know, touch a, anything, we've like no flu incidents this year, like at all. Oh, I love like, that. It's not it's like there's none. It's like almost zero. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with the data monkey. I hope you're enjoying this episode and I want to take a short break to remind you why we're here and how you can help. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard this quote. It's one I love, it's one by Thoreau. And it says there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And I love it because it describes the problem of polarity in our political system perfectly. We all like to focus on the presidency. We all like to focus on the electoral college. We all like to focus on the Senate. We all like to focus on federal institutions that are very difficult to change as a way to resolve the dysfunction and polarity in Congress. But the reality is the structures that create the dysfunction and polarity in our political system happen at the state level. Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows I did about a year of research before launching this. 
And it's our winner-take-all system of determining elections, and especially allocating members to Congress, that leads to the polarity we've seen and also creates a structure where the two-party duopoly is removed from any real competition. Now, we can change that at the state level, but it's not going to happen without boots on the ground. And so there are a couple of ways you can help. Number one, there are tons of organizations around the country looking to promote electoral reform. And with some Googling or some searching in this podcast, you can find them. Real change doesn't happen without folks taking action. And you'd be surprised of the impact that you can have. Now, Number two, you can share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested. As you know, I'm always featuring minor party candidates, electoral reform advocates, and other folks who can help you understand how to take action and how to have an impact at the local level. Lastly, swing by YDHTY.com and drop me a line or connect with me on social media via the hashtag YDHTY. I'm always looking for like-minded people to join in the conversation and would love to hear from you. The goal of YDHTY is to eliminate the two-party duopoly by 2029. That's under 10 years. And this is your call to join the movement. Look forward to hearing from you. And now, back to the episode. I am like clockwork. I am good for a cold the beginning of November. Like clockwork. Yeah. I get a cold at the beginning of November. Knock yeah. on wood. This is this is the first. Well, it's already passed. So the fact I haven't gotten it, which, you know, I can totally live with. I can totally live with that. But yeah, like I, I think the 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 thing that kind of pisses me off too, getting back to the regional standpoint of it, is that, you know, you and I are in Boston. We are in an area that was hit hard, right? It's not like a figment to us. Yeah. Right. Like it's I have not, personal. I have, yeah, I have like personal relationships to this, right? When yeah, exactly. Was, you know, my sister was running a COVID clinic and taking care of people who were on their last legs. Um, yes, yes, exactly. And and you know, I one of uh, one of my son's friends' mom was working as a nurse in Faulkner in the COVID ward there. Um, so you know, yeah, you and I know people who have come in contact with it. It is no joke, and so. You know, for you and I, it makes perfect sense. But then, like in my social media feed, I have folks from all over the place, just like bunch of big mouths who are all talking about, "Oh no, I'm still going to have the big Thanksgiving." Blah 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, you go, you know, blow your brains out. Um, yeah, I, in fact, well, let's just make it. I mean, you want to be a real, true libertarian here, right? I'd say go ahead and do it. Yeah, everybody there should have to sign a waiver. I do not resuscitate. If you need an ICU bed afterwards. Yeah, I would totally fine, go. Right. Yeah, like, absolutely. But do not, but you're not going to get, you're not getting a bed afterwards if you get it. Yeah. You did this. Like you're not, we're not going to don't show up at the hospital two weeks later. I, I'm a hundred percent with you. And, you know, I think the, the getting back to like just the, the topic of polarization as well is you even see it right now, and I'm not going to name names, but I have legit, and I avoid political arguments for the most part, right? I don't get involved in them. I do kind of dissect them for people, but I don't, I, I make it a point not to get into political arguments generally, but I have legit gotten into one political argument over whether the election results are legitimate or not. Oh boy. Yes. Yeah. So in any other year, a president in the midst of an economic downturn with a pandemic, you know, would just be assumed to be toast. And yet, despite the fact that we have an incumbent with those negatives working against them, with a 7 million vote deficit in the popular vote and about a 70 electoral vote gap there are still people saying that the election was stolen. Well, because he's egging them on. Yes. Yes. And so I just wonder, like, have we crossed the threshold? Like, are we like, are we, are we beyond the point where, um, are we beyond the point where like 
facts matter anymore or where we can even agree on what the facts are. Because at this point, like there's the thing that I, so I'll give you kind of like what I said as I, what I said to them or how I, how I kind of, you know, how I capped off the conversation, which is I said, we both have enough quote unquote evidence to outlast the time we have to discuss this. So there is more than enough information to justify your viewpoint. And there is not enough time for two people to change someone else's opinion. One thing that would be helpful for everybody is to understand that like your information stream is polluted. You really have to like go a step further than what your favorite news source says. Well, and it's like, you know, everybody, everybody lives long enough to quote their mother at some point. Um, My, you know, I just, I follow, I just always feel like just follow the money. It will explain Mm -hmm. to you what's going on. Yeah. Like you don't need a massive conspiracy theory to explain Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like if you are, you know, if you are, you know, hanging, holding a stop the seal steel sign, you're probably getting inundated daily with fundraising emails for Mm -hmm. this legal effort. Yeah. I would urge you to just take one of those emails and read the fine print at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It says none of the funds actually have to go to the legal effort. Oh yeah, they're going. I think it's sixty percent go to, uh, to to some of those funds go to. It'll go to a political Trump. action committee. It'll pay off Trump's you know campaign loans that he borrowed yeah. money for, and it'll just go to like whatever he feels like using it for, as long as it's somewhat politically related. The, the funny thing that I saw on social media after the election were the number of Trump people who sounded like the pro Hillary people sounded like in 2016. Yeah. Cause if anyone, I don't know if people remember, but you know, people were calling for a recount. They were saying the vote was tampered with granted. The margin was not 7 million. Right. Um, but you know, there were, there was, there was, there were allegations of an invalid election. There were talk of, uh, faithless electors, yep. you know, all the same talk. All the same place. stuff. Now it wasn't promoted by the candidate. It wasn't promoted by Clinton, but it was all there. You no, know, she conceded just, this the next day. That's exactly it. I mean, right. Trump is just having a more difficult time, but, um, that distrust is there. And I think that's kind of what bothers me and what scares me the most is that the distrust exists on both sides. Um, I would, I would argue that the Republican party on the whole is much more apt to like leverage that and to gin that up. Um, at least from what I've seen, um, you know, I think, I think there's, there are just more Republicans willing to embrace the idea of widespread voter fraud than there are Democrats. As you mentioned, Hillary Clinton conceding with, you know, a negative 2 million or a positive 2 million uh, advantage to the, to the winner uh, in, in 2016. No. Um, And even in the battleground States, slimmer margins. The thing that's scaring me now is that this reality, again, this desire to kind of like preserve your reality has gotten so intense that you're seeing a lot of folks on the conservative side start to self select and start to move themselves out of this common information stream. And granted, like no, no, they're, can, they're dumping Fox news in favor of Newsmax. Well, and yeah. One, and going, one news America. And can I just yeah. say like a public service statement here? Like, yeah. and I don't care your politics, but in, cause it, I think it happens on both sides, right? It is yeah. if you are shopping for a news channel or a new media source that tells you what you want to hear, you're doing it wrong. The one thing I will say that parlor does well is parlor does head off foreign meddling well. So if you look at the part, the purpose of Facebook and the purpose of Twitter, like the reason they're doing what they're doing, I do feel it's, it's benevolent, which is, I feel like they, they, they feel like they really did the country a disservice in 2016 by allowing the fake news disinformation, um, distribution to, or the, the amount of fake news and disinformation entering our system to get out of hand, you know, and I think they're trying to kind of like, I think they're trying to make good on that. So I understand that. Um, what parlor does differently. That's interesting is it requires an ID and a social security number. So you effectively have to like, 
you have to so you have to entrust these people with your social security. Well, right? first off, there's that. So that's a whole. <laughs> I mean, that's a data breach waiting to happen. You know, first <laughs> off, right? But wow, right? But but here's the here's the thing is like, you know, so in a way, they've done they have done a good job, like creating a a, a, a firewall to keep like Russian troll farms out. You know, um, the other, and but, they've got an easy path to monetization. I mean, they just file fake fa- tax returns on your behalf with all right? the security numbers they're collecting. I mean, you know, yeah, right. So, so there's like, but, but there's so there's like, so they've actually like done a a good thing. The problem is, is it's a place where people are going to like protest, um, what they view as overreach from big tech, and, um, and and the problem. There, of course, is like, yeah, that's great. So you guys can all share your, you know, your 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 videos of like ballots being dumped in some river in Philadelphia, you know. But what are you going to do when it's like your kid's birthday, <laughs> like because your because your your grandma ain't going over to parlor, you know? The interesting thing, though, I'll say that I that I picked up in an in an episode um, earlier last month with again probably one of the more like MAGA guys I know, um, was that there is this sentiment that there is a common voice in tech and in media uh, and in academia that, that, that reflects a certain ethos that's not everybody. And, mm. and to, to an extent, I would agree with that. Part of the issue with COVID, part of the issue with our response to the pandemic is the fact that there are a group of people whose morals and 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 whose neighborhoods, you know, aren't like everybody else's, aren't like ours. Mm-hmm. And there are just like there were people who weren't as affected by COVID in the beginning, just like there were people who valued going to church as much as we might value people going out into the streets to protest racial injustice um these people don't see their morals and their lives reflected in the majority of media in the tech sector in academia and it's not to say that they're right it's not to say that the institutions i mentioned are wrong but that disconnect creates a a real breeding ground for mistrust um, and also does create a situation where you are less likely to believe the stuff you see from these sources and more likely to believe um, information from trusted sources that differs from that. And I, I don't quite know how to bridge that gap um, because to be frank, you know, most of the, most of the solutions I have are kind of patronizing to be a hundred percent Frank, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like in my mind, if the educational systems were better around the country, people would be less prone to disinformation, but on the same token, you know, there are people who are going to hear that and think that I'm calling them stupid. Yeah, but this happens, but it happens kind of in both places too. Like it's not, so I guess the, the stupidity runs all over all different levels of education. Yeah. Oh, for right? sure. Cause I think you've heard me mention this and I can, I can state it for the, on one of the, cause I haven't said it on the podcast, but I've decided we need a new, I need a new word because, um, so, uh, you know, when I hear people say things like, yeah, we just trust the science, believe in the science. Right. And that bothers me. It bugs me because, most of the time it's coming out of the mouth of someone who has not really done any work in science. They mm-hmm. don't, they don't read science on a regular basis of any way, right? They're not reading white papers. They're not reading like scientific studies. They're not, yeah. uh, you know, so when they're saying that they're just sort of regurgitating somebody else's, you know, uh, opinion based on sort of a, a secondary or, or tertiary source. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I've decided I need a new word for this and Scientology is taken. So I'm going to go with um, scientism uh, where there's this mm-hmm. kind of like, when we talk about believing in science, science is not a, a fixed body of knowledge, right? It's a method. It's like, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of thinking critically about things. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think where you're, 
your point is kind of right. What we need is people to think critically. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, and I feel like that runs, uh, that the lack of critical thinking runs all different through all different levels of education. Like mm-hmm. we have very highly educated people in this country who don't think very critically. Oh yeah. I know a lot of very intelligent people, very educated people who are also ensconced in their own information bubble. It's kind of the man in the coma thing. If, if I came here from another planet, if I was, you know, if I just like was thought out of a block of ice and you had to explain why you were right and why this other person who disagreed with you was wrong, how would you do that? How, how, do you, how do you reach a conclusion when all information sources are supposedly uh, lack credibility and, and all information sources are polluted? You know, how do you then decipher it? Um, I think uh, one of the things that I use a lot now, one of the exercises I use a lot is, do you know, is it Occam's razor? Is that what it is? Occam's, or Occam's razor. Yeah. Occam's razor. Yeah. So, so one of the things I use a lot now is Occam's razor, which is the idea that the more complex explanation is usually incorrect. You know, so the, the fewer people I can trust or the more, the greater the conspiracy, the more likely it is to be wrong. You know, so if we just get super simple, JFK, right? Oh, dude, of course. I mean, th- anyone ever tried to just host a surprise party? They usually get the s- secret. Yes. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like, not only do conspiracy theories are stupid, and they're stupid because one, it's incredibly hard to coordinate a conspiracy. Two, it's really, 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 really hard to keep anything quiet. So not only would yes. these people be good at like some cabal of people that would be manipulating some massive conspiracy, and then also really, really, really good at keeping everybody quiet about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes. it, just doesn't, it, it doesn't pass the most basic like level of, you know, test. It was common sense, right? Like, yeah. <sighs> and so I, I think that that's it. I think the more effort, the more people I have to involve in proving my point, the more likely it is to be false. And, I think that is the one Occam's razor. So for those of you unfamiliar with it, it's O-C-C-A-M apostrophe S razor. Look it up and live by it. Um, well, I mean, it's a, here's a good example of that, right? It yeah. was, um, you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but the same thing had occurred to me once that we were shouting about the, the election being stolen um, the next day. And it's interesting because I had raised this question like, couple of weeks before it at my uh, in work I, I asked our sort of political um, our sort of geopolitical strategist and you know, who was ta- doing a lot of writing and talking about the election and, and I asked him I was like well, you know if they're paving like because even then it was the talk amongst some of these people that Trump was going to be like paving up an argument for this like before it mm-hmm. even went down he was already planning to sort of call fraud the next day right like yeah um, and so you know I, I said well well, this is interesting because what are they going to do? Like, how is how is the Republican Party going to handle like the split tickets, like where people vote for Biden but then they voted for Republicans down ballot? Because that's going to be the tougher stuff to. to yeah. have. that's the one where you're going to have a hard time, right? Because, and this is where I, because you know now I look at it, it as you know watching everyone sort of sell this storyline of a massive conspiracy to steal the election. I'm like, so you put together a massive conspiracy to steal the election and you didn't steal the Senate. Like, I don't know what, what like that. Cause you're not, now you just see so all you got, what you still got was an, you stole an ineffectual presidency. They're trying to throw you off the scent. They're trying to, it's, it's all part of their plan. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, that's an example of an Occam's razor. You're just like, come on. <laughs> like, well, yeah. Use your head. People use your head. Just look at this. Yeah. Use your I, head. I think, I think it's like, again, like anybody in any other year, in any other year, people would have just assumed Trump was toast. In any other year, you wouldn't like, look, McCain was the underdog in 2008 because of the financial crisis. Romney was the underdog in 2012 because the economy was decent. It was kind of a coin toss in 2016 because everybody hated Clinton and everybody hated Trump, right? It's If you go back to 
the to, to, to World War II, right? And I and I, and the only reason I'm only saying to World War II is because I haven't looked before then. The only president ever to win in a recession was Harry Truman. Yeah. And the only reason that Harry Truman stood a chance was because he was involved in ending World War II. That's mm. the only... So you can predict who is going to lose. I can tell you who the loser is going to be in 2024. If the economy's good, the loser is going to be whoever is going against the... Uh, who, if Bi- Biden chooses to run against whoever's going against Biden. If the economy's bad, it's going to be the Republican. It's just, it's that yep, simple. Yep, that's how people it. vote for presidents. That's right. So, so it's, it, a, it's the on-off switch. That's Ch- exactly it. You, you said this to me years ago, that you're only voting for one of two things, stay the course or change. That's it. Because, w- w- you know, what else are you voting for? I mean, like, 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 and this, again, maybe something to cap off with for everybody listening is, you know, in this country, you have partisans who have their own intensely vested interests for why they need to vote that way. And you're never going to change them, right? So, you know, pro-life, pro-choice, you know, religion, well, let's see, pro-life, pro-choice, anti-tax, pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-social state. You know, there's a group of partisans who are going to vote for their party regardless, right? These are the people who would quite literally vote for their candidate if that person shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, quite literally. And I think everybody who casted the vote in 2020 would fit into that category, right? And then you've got a group of people who just vote based on the state of affairs. And that's where the elections are made, you know? And and I'll actually add a little wrinkle to the whole 2024 thing, which is if Biden retires... And there is a Democratic candidate who people don't necessarily like as much or who has disfavorable ratings. Um, then and why that could- would you go with Trump? Like, it feels like you'd have a, such a great shot at having like a, a better candidate. Well, yeah. I mean, and who knows who's going to come along? I think I think what what what's you know, what scares me more now is that any candidate can now basically like invalidate the vote you know or any candidate now who wants to can claim the vote was rigged and use that as their um as 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 a potentially disruptive force well hopefully it won't work because this isn't working that well so yeah true enough true enough so, so you know so I, what do you think like so i know like i i never like to do predictions cuz every time we do something terrible happens so but so I'm going to make this a benign one for you. And I'm going to make this a real benign one. My, my prediction is without a doubt, Trump will remain part of the conversation in the Republican party until the Georgia runoff. And after that, I, and and after that, um, after that, I feel I'm I'm kind of like unsure as to where he goes after that, whether the Republican Party officially turns their back or whether they kind of stick with him because they have to. Any yeah, thoughts when on he's that? Out of, yeah, I guess I, I was going to go with that. I, we'll see. Maybe I'm totally wrong. But my thought is that when, once he's out of power, mm-hmm. like his actual, like the, the people who want to tune into Trump TV, well, maybe a decent sized audience is is not the 80 million is not 70 million people or whatever yeah right i mean it's a it's a much smaller fraction of people oh, yeah. who are actually gonna bother to like you know to go follow him wherever he's sort of going when he has no actual influence on the on the day-to-day you know mm-hmm. then he's just back into yelling about birtherism again like, you know, he's looking for Obama's birth certificate, right? I mean, yeah. it, he was doing this kind of stuff prior. And I guess is his audience bigger today? Sure. But it feels like it's still going to end up as being like a niche, you know, what I yeah. mean? going back to a niche. Um, and yeah, and I don't see him, I don't see him being able to get a network off the ground. I mean, if you look like, 
if you look at, I mean, all you need to do is look at like Trump Airlines. Trump just, say, just look at the vast history of his other businesses. Yeah, the, ta- the Taj Trump Mahal. Stakes, Trump Stakes, uh, Trump, Trump University. The, yeah, and there, there's no way they're going to, there's no way like anybody could give him enough money to get him out of hawk, you know? So I feel like, uh, I feel like he's just going to be dogged by his own personal problems the, in- the instant he gets out of there. He's not um, young. No, we're not talking no. about a fifty-four-year-old guy. We're talking about a seventy-five-year-old guy. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think it's going to be like another Iraq war where they're all for it until they get far enough away to not be for it again. That's kind of how I was thinking about it. But yeah, yeah. you know, that said, well, it'll probably be the greatest, you know, the greatest ratings of all time or something. So this episode covered two big themes from the Trump era. Number one is that people feel talked down to and talked over. And that's the really the reason why Trump was elected. You know, we've heard this time and time again from the most conservative to the most liberal guests on this show. And this is especially acute in areas far removed from the urban enclaves many of us live in. And if we don't get better at caring for and speaking to one another rather than at one another, we may end up with a situation where we need to trust each other and come together, maybe like a pandemic, and find we can't. Now, second, getting back to something I said at the beginning of the episode, the current information stream is so polluted that two people who disagree on a subject have more information backing up their side of the argument than they do time to argue their points. And the reason I started this podcast was the fact people on the left and the right don't trust the people on the other side. They don't trust who they vote for, they don't trust the places they get their news, and they don't even trust their science. And I think we discovered a very simple tactic in this episode, which is the simplest answer is usually the correct one. Now, of course, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts, so feel free to hit me up on ydhty.com or via the hashtag ydhty on social media. Per usual, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam, yet to find a nickname that sticks, Yaffe. YDHTY is produced by the Big Gino, Jason Putney in North Carolina, United States. Until the next, this is Dan Sally saying goodbye.